Welcome to Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, a story of tragedy, adventure, and redemption that begins with a life-changing decision made by a young sailor in a moment of crisis. This podcast presents the text of Lord Jim as read from the original publication, available through Project Gutenberg. You can follow along in the text by clicking the link in our show notes. This is our fifth installment of Lord Jim, which includes chapters 10 and 11 for those following along in the text. Weekly episodes are released each Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe. With each episode, we recommend an article available via Nutting Library's electronic resources that provides insight on aspects of the novel, and we'll also be sharing details about the historical context at the time of its publication via our social media accounts. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this fifth installment of Lord Jim. Chapter 10 He locked his fingers together and tore them apart. Nothing could be more true. He had indeed jumped into an everlasting deep hole. He had tumbled from a height he could never scale again. By that time, the boat had gone driving forward past the bows. It was too dark just then for them to see each other, and, moreover, they were blinded and half-drowned with rain. He told me it was like being swept by a flood through a cavern. They turned their backs to the squall. The skipper, it seems, got an oar over the stern to keep the boat before it. And for two or three minutes, the end of the world had come through a deluge and a pitchy blackness. The sea hissed like 20,000 kettles. That's his simile, not mine. I fancy there was not much wind after the first gust, and he himself admitted at the inquiry that the sea never got up that night to any extent. He crouched down in the bows and stole a furtive glance back. He saw just one yellow gleam of the masthead light high up and blurred like a last star ready to dissolve. It terrified me to see it still there, he said. That's what he said. What terrified him was the thought that the drowning was not over yet. No doubt he wanted to be done with that abomination as quickly as possible. Nobody in the boat made a sound. In the dark she seemed to fly, but of course she could not have had much way. Then the shower swept ahead, and the great, distracting, hissing noise followed the rain into distance and died out. There was nothing to be heard then but the slight wash about the boat's sides. Somebody's teeth were chattering violently. A hand touched his back. A faint voice said, "'You there?' Another cried out shakily, "'She's gone!' And they all stood up together to look astern. They saw no lights. All was black. A thin, cold drizzle was driving into their faces. The boat lurched slightly. The teeth chattered faster, stopped, and began again twice before the man could muster his shiver sufficiently to say, "'Just in time. Brr!' He recognized the voice of the chief engineer, saying surlily, "'I saw her go down. I happened to turn my head.' The wind had dropped almost completely. They watched in the dark with their heads half-turned to windward, as if expecting to hear cries. At first, he was thankful the night had covered up the scene before his eyes, and then to know of it, and yet to have seen and heard nothing, appeared somehow the culminating point of an awful misfortune. Strange, isn't it? he murmured, interrupting himself in his disjointed narrative. It did not seem so strange to me. He must have had an unconscious conviction that the reality could not be half as bad, not half as anguishing, appalling, and vengeful as the created terror of his imagination. I believe that, in the first moment, his heart was wrung with all the suffering, 
that his soul knew the accumulated savor of all the fear, all the horror, all the despair of eight hundred human beings pounced upon in the night by a sudden and violent death. Else why should he have said, It seemed to me that I must jump out of that accursed boat and swim back to sea, half a mile, more, any distance, to the very spot? Why this impulse? Do you see the significance? Why back to the very spot? Why not drown alongside, if he meant drowning? Why back to the very spot, to see? As if his imagination had to be soothed by the assurance that all was over before death could bring relief. I defy any one of you to offer another explanation. It was one of those bizarre and exciting glimpses through the fog. It was an extraordinary disclosure. He let it out as the most natural thing one could say. He fought down that impulse, and then he became conscious of the silence. He mentioned this to me. A silence of the sea, of the sky, merged into one indefinite immensity still as death around these saved, palpitating lives. You might have heard a pin drop in the boat, he said with a queer contraction of his lips, like a man trying to master his sensibilities while relating some extremely moving fact. A silence. God alone, who had willed him as he was, knows what he made of it in his heart. I didn't think any spot on earth could be so still, he said. You couldn't distinguish the sea from the sky. There is nothing to see and nothing to hear, not a glimmer, not a shape, not a sound. You could have believed that every bit of dry land had gone to the bottom, that every man on earth but I and these beggars in the boat had got drowned. He leaned over the table with his knuckles propped amongst coffee cups, liqueur glasses, cigar ends. I seemed to believe it. Everything was gone, and all was over. He fetched a deep sigh. With me. Marlowe sat up abruptly and flung away his cheroot with force. It made a darting red trail like a toy rocket fired through the drapery of creepers. Nobody stirred. Hey, what do you think of it? He cried with sudden animation. Wasn't he true to himself, wasn't he? His saved life was over for want of ground under his feet for want of sights for his eyes, for want of voices in his ears. Annihilation, hey! And all the time it was only a clouded sky, a sea that did not break, the air that did not stir. Only a night, only a silence. It lasted for a while, and then they were suddenly and unanimously moved to make a noise over their escape. I knew from the first she would go. Not a minute too soon. A narrow squeak, begosh. He said nothing. But the breeze that had dropped came back, a gentle draft freshened steadily, and the sea joined its murmuring voice to this talkative reaction succeeding the dumb moments of awe. She was gone. She was gone. Not a doubt of it. Nobody could have helped. They repeated the same words over and over again as though they couldn't stop themselves. Never doubted she would go. The lights were gone. No mistake. The lights were gone. Couldn't expect anything else. She had to go. He noticed that they talked as though they had left behind them nothing but an empty ship. They concluded she would not have been long when she once started. It seemed to cause them some sort of fascination. They assured each other that she couldn't have been long about it, just shot down like a flat iron. The chief engineer declared that the masthead light at the moment of the sinking seemed to drop like a lighted match you throw down. At this, the second laughed hysterically. I am glad, I am glad. His teeth went on like an electric rattle, said Jim, and all at once he began to cry. He wept and blubbered like a child catching his breath and sobbing, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. He would be quiet for a while and start suddenly, 
oh, my poor arm, oh, my poor arm. I felt I could knock him down. Some of them sat in the stern sheets. I could just make out their shapes. Voices came to me, mumble, mumble, grunt, grunt. All this seemed very hard to bear. I was cold too, and I could do nothing. I thought that if I moved, I would have gone over the side, and... His hand groped stealthily, came in contact with a liqueur glass, and was withdrawn suddenly as if he had touched a red-hot coal. I pushed the bottle slightly. Won't you have some more? I asked. He looked at me angrily. Don't you think I can tell what there is to tell about screwing myself up? He asked. The squad of globetrotters had gone to bed. We were alone but for a vague white form erect in the shadow that, being looked at, cringed forward, hesitated, backed away slightly. It was getting late, but I did not hurry my guest. In the midst of his forlorn state, he heard his companions begin to abuse someone. What kept you from jumping, you lunatic? said a scolding voice. The chief engineer left the stern sheets and could be heard clambering forward as if with hostile intentions against the greatest idiot that ever was. The skipper shouted with rasping effort offensive epithets from where he sat at the oar. He lifted his head at that uproar and heard the name George, while a hand in the dark struck him on the breast. "'What have you got to say for yourself, you fool?' queried somebody with a sort of virtuous fury. "'They were after me,' he said. "'They were abusing me, abusing me, by the name of George.' He paused to stare, tried to smile, turned his eyes away, and went on. "'That little second puts his head right under my nose. "'Why, it's that blasted mate!' "'What?' howls the skipper from the other end of the boat. "'No!' shrieks the chief, and he too stopped to look at my face. The wind had left the boat suddenly. The rain began to fall again, and the soft, uninterrupted, a little mysterious sound with which the sea receives a shower arose on all sides of the night. They were too taken aback to say anything more at first, he narrated steadily, and what could I have said to them? He faltered for a moment and made an effort to go on. They called me horrible names. His voice, sinking to a whisper, now and then would leap up suddenly, hardened by the passion of scorn as though he had been talking of secret abominations. Never mind what they called me, he said grimly. I could hear hate in their voices. A good thing, too. They could not forgive me for being in the boat. They hated it. It made them mad. He laughed short. But it kept me from... Look, I was sitting with my arms crossed on the gunwale. He perched himself smartly on the edge of the table and crossed his arms. Like this, see? One little tilt backwards, and I would have been gone after the others. One little tilt, the least bit, the least bit. He frowned and tapping his forehead with the tip of his middle finger. It was there all the time, he said impressively. All the time, that notion. And the rain, cold, thick, cold as melted snow, colder, on my thin cotton clothes. I'll never be so cold again in my life, I know. And the sky was black, too. All black. Not a star, not a light anywhere. Nothing outside that confounded boat and those two yapping before me like a couple of mean mongrels at a treed thief. Yap, yap. What you doing here? You're a fine sort. Too much of a bloomin' gentleman to put your hand to it. Come out of your trance, did you? To sneak in, did you? Yap, yap. You ain't fit to live. Yap, yap. Two of them together trying to outbark each other. The other would bay from the stern through the rain. Couldn't see him, couldn't make it out. Some of his filthy jargon. Yap, yap. Bow, wow, 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 wow. Yap, yap. It was sweet to hear them. It kept me alive, I tell you. It saved my life. At it they went, as if trying to drive me overboard with the noise. 
I wonder you had pluck enough to jump. You ain't wanted here. If I had known who it was, I would have tipped you over, you skunk. What have you done with the other? Where did you get the pluck to jump, you coward? What's to prevent us three from firing you overboard? They were out of breath. The shower passed away upon the sea. Then, nothing. There was nothing round the boat, not even a sound. Wanted to see me overboard, did they? Upon my soul. I think they would have had their wish if they had only kept quiet. Fire me overboard, would they? Try, I said. I would for two pence. Too good for you, they screeched together. It was so dark that it was only when one or the other of them moved that I was quite sure of seeing him. By heavens, I only wish they had tried. I couldn't help exclaiming, what an extraordinary affair. Not bad, eh? He said, as if in some sort astounded. They pretended to think I had done away with that donkey man for some reason or other. Why should I? And how the devil was I to know? Didn't I get somehow into the boat? Into the boat, I... The muscles round his lips contracted into an unconscious grimace that tore through the mask of his usual expression. Something violent, short-lived, and illuminating, like a twist of lightning that admits the eye for an instant into the secret convolutions of a cloud. I did. I was plainly there with them, wasn't I? Isn't it awful a man should be driven to do a thing like that, and be responsible? What did I know about their George they were howling after? I remembered I had seen him curled up on the deck. Murdering coward, the chief kept on calling me. He didn't seem able to remember any other two words. I didn't care, only his noise began to worry me. Shut up, I said. At that he collected himself for a confounded screech. You killed him! You killed him! No, I shouted, but I will kill you directly. I jumped up and he fell backwards over a thwart and an awful loud thump. I don't know why. Too dark. Tried to step back, I suppose. I stood still, facing aft, and the wretched little second began to whine. You ain't going to hit a chap with a broken arm, and you call yourself a gentleman, too. I heard a heavy tramp. One, two, and wheezy grunting. The other beast was coming at me, clattering his oar over the stern. I saw him moving, big, big, as you see a man in a mist, in a dream. Come on, I cried. I would have tumbled him over like a bale of shakings. He stopped, muttering to himself, and went back. Perhaps he had heard the wind. I didn't. It was the last heavy gust we had. He went back to his oar. I was sorry. I would have tried to... to... He opened and closed his curved fingers, and his hands had an eager and cruel flutter. Steady, steady, I murmured. Eh, hey, what? I am not excited, he remonstrated, awfully hurt, with a convulsive jerk of his elbow knocked over the cognac bottle. I started forward, scraping my chair. He bounced off the table as if a mine had been exploded behind his back, and half-turned before he alighted, crouching on his feet to show me a startled pair of eyes and a face white about the nostrils. A look of intense annoyance succeeded. "'Awfully sorry. How clumsy of me,' he mumbled, very vexed, while the pungent odor of spilt alcohol enveloped us suddenly with an atmosphere of a low-drinking bout in the cool, pure darkness of the night. The lights had been put out in the dining hall, our candle glimmered solitary in the long gallery, and the columns had turned black from pediment to capital. On the vivid stars, the high corner of the harbor office stood out distinct across the esplanade, as though the somber pile had glided nearer to see and hear. He assumed an air of indifference. I dare say I am less calm now than I was then. I was ready for anything. These were trifles. You had a lively time of it in that boat, I remarked. 
I was ready, he repeated. After the ship's lights had gone, anything might have happened in that boat, anything in the world, and the world no wiser. I felt this, and I was pleased. It was just dark enough, too. We were like men walled up quick in a roomy grave. No concern with anything on earth, nobody to pass an opinion, nothing mattered. For the third time during this conversation, he laughed harshly, but there was no one about to suspect him of being only drunk. No fear, no law, no sounds, no eyes, not even our own, till, till sunrise at least. I was struck by the suggestive truth of his words. There is something peculiar in a small boat upon the wide sea. Over the lives born from under the shadow of death, there seems to fall the shadow of madness. When your ship fails you, your whole world seems to fail you. The world that made you, restrained you, took care of you. It is as if the souls of men floating on an abyss and in touch with immensity had been set free for any excess of heroism, absurdity, or abomination. Of course, as with belief, thought, love, hate, conviction, or even the visual aspect of material things, there are as many shipwrecks as there are men, and in this one there was something abject which made the isolation more complete. There was a villainy of circumstances that cut these men off more completely from the rest of mankind, whose ideal of conduct had never undergone the trial of a fiendish and appalling joke. They were exasperated with him for being a half-hearted shirker. He focused on them, his hatred of the whole thing. He would have liked to take a signal revenge of the abhorrent opportunity they had put in his way. Trust a boat on the high seas to bring out the irrational that lurks at the bottom of every thought, sentiment, sensation, emotion. It was part of the burlesque meanness pervading that particular disaster at sea that they did not come to blows. It was all threats, all a terribly effective feint, a sham from beginning to end, planned by the tremendous disdain of the dark powers whose real terrors, always on the verge of triumph, are perpetually foiled by the steadfastness of men. I asked, after waiting for a while, Well, what happened? A futile question. I knew too much already to hope for the grace of a single uplifting touch, for the favor of a hinted madness, of shadowed horror. Nothing, he said. I meant business, but they meant noise only. Nothing happened. And the rising sun found him just as he had jumped up first in the bows of the boat. What a persistence of readiness! He had been holding the tiller in his hand, too, all night. They had dropped the rudder overboard while attempting to ship it, and I suppose the tiller got kicked forward somehow while they were rushing up and down that boat trying to do all sorts of things at once so as to get clear of the side. It was a long, heavy piece of hard wood, and apparently he had been clutching it for six hours or so. If you don't call that being ready, can you imagine him, silent and on his feet half the night, his face to the gusts of rain, staring at somber forms watchful of vague movements, straining his ears to catch rare low murmurs in the stern sheets? Firmness of courage or effort of fear. What do you think? And the endurance is undeniable, too. Six hours more or less on the defensive. Six hours more or less on the defensive. Six hours of alert immobility while the boat drove slowly or floated arrested, according to the caprice of the wind. While the sea, calmed, slept at last, while the clouds passed above his head, while the sky from an immensity lusterless and black diminished to a somber and lustrous vault, scintillated with a greater brilliance, faded to the east, paled at the zenith, while the dark shapes blotting the low stars astern got outlines, relief became shoulders, 
heads, faces, features, confronted him with dreary stares, had disheveled hair, torn clothes, blinked red eyelids at the white dawn. They looked as though they had been knocking about drunken gutters for a week, he described graphically, and then he muttered something about the sunrise being of a kind that foretells a calm day. You know that sailor habit of referring to the weather in every connection, and on my side his few mumbled words were enough to make me see the lower limb of the sun clearing the line of the horizon, the tremble of a vast ripple running over all the visible expanse of the sea, as if the waters had shuddered, giving birth to the globe of light while the last puff of the breeze would stir the air in a sigh of relief. They sat in the stern, shoulder to shoulder, with the skipper in the middle, like three dirty owls, and stared at me. I heard him say with an intention of hate that distilled the corrosive virtue into the commonplace words like a drop of powerful poison falling into a glass of water. But my thoughts dwelt upon that sunrise. I could imagine under the pellucid emptiness of the sky these four men imprisoned in the solitude of the sea, the lonely sun, regardless of the speck of life, ascending the clear curve of the heaven as if to gaze ardently from a greater height at his own splendor reflected in the still ocean. They called out to me from aft, said Jim, as though we had been chums together. I heard them. They were begging me to be sensible and drop that blooming piece of wood. Why would I carry on so? They hadn't done me any harm, had they? There had been no harm. No harm. His face crimsoned as though he could not get rid of the air in his lungs. No harm, he burst out. I leave it to you. You can understand. Can't you? You see it, don't you? No harm. Good God. What more could they have done? Oh, yes, I know very well. I jumped, certainly. I jumped. I told you I jumped. But I tell you, they weren't too much for any man. It was their doing as plainly as if they had reached up with a boat hook and pulled me over. Can't you see it? You must see it. Come, speak, straight out. His uneasy eyes fastened upon mine, questioned, begged, challenged, entreated. For the life of me, I couldn't help murmuring, You've been tried. More than is fair, he caught up swiftly. I wasn't given half a chance with a gang like that. And now they were friendly. Oh, so damnably friendly. Chums, shipmates, all in the same boat. Make the best of it. They hadn't meant anything. They didn't care a hang for George. George had gone back to his berth for something at the last moment and got caught. The man was a manifest fool. Very sad, of course. Their eyes looked at me. Their lips moved. They wagged their heads at the other end of the boat. Three of them, they beckoned, to me. Why not? Hadn't I jumped? I said nothing. There are no words for the sort of things I wanted to say. If I had opened my lips just then, I would have simply howled like an animal. I was asking myself when I would wake up. They urged me aloud to come aft and hear quietly what the skipper had to say. We were sure to be picked up before the evening, right in the track of all the canal traffic. There was smoke to the northwest now. It gave me an awful shock to see this faint, faint blur, this low trail of brown mist through which you could see the boundary of sea and sky. I called out to them that I could hear very well where I was. The skipper started swearing, as hoarse as a crow. He wasn't going to talk at the top of his voice for my accommodation. Are you afraid they will hear you on shore? I asked. He glared as if he would have liked to claw me to pieces. The chief engineer advised him to humor me. He said I wasn't in my right head yet. The other rose astern like a thick pillar of flesh and talked, talked. 
Jim remained thoughtful. Well, I said, what did I care what story they agreed to make up? He cried recklessly. They could tell what they jolly well liked. It was their business. I knew the story. Nothing they could make people believe could alter it for me. I let him talk, argue, talk, argue. He went on and on and on. Suddenly I felt my legs give way under me. I was sick, tired, tired to death. I let fall the tiller, turned my back on them, and sat down on the foremost thwart. I had enough. They called to me to know if I understood. Wasn't it true, every word of it? It was true, by God, after their fashion. I did not turn my head. I heard them palavering together. The silly ass won't say anything. Oh, he understands well enough. Let him be. He will be all right. What can he do? What could I do? Weren't we all in the same boat? I tried to be deaf. The smoke had disappeared to the northward. It was a dead calm. They had a drink from the water breaker, and I drank too. Afterwards, they made a great business of spreading the boat sail over the gunnels. Would I keep a lookout? They crept under, out of my sight, thank God. I felt weary, weary, done up, as if I hadn't had one hour's sleep since the day I was born. I couldn't see the water for the glitter of the sunshine. From time to time, one of them would creep out, stand up to take a look all round, and get under again. I could hear spells of snoring below the sail. Some of them could sleep. One of them, at least. I couldn't. All was light, light, and the boat seemed to be falling through it. Now and then I would feel quite surprised to find myself sitting on a thwart. He began to talk with measured steps to and fro before my chair, one hand in his trousers pocket, his head bent thoughtfully, and his right arm at long intervals raised for a gesture that seemed to put out of his way an invisible intruder. I suppose you think I was going mad, he began in a changed tone. And well you may, if you remember I had lost my cap. The sun crept all the way from east to west over my bare head, but that day I could not come to any harm, I suppose. The sun could not make me mad. His right arm put aside the idea of madness. Neither could it kill me. Again, his arm repulsed a shadow. That rested with me. Did it? I said, inexpressibly amazed at this new turn and I looked at him with the same sort of feeling I might be fairly conceived to experience had he, after spinning round on his heel, presented an altogether new face. I didn't get brain fever. I did not drop dead either, he went on. I didn't bother myself at all about the sun over my head. I was thinking as coolly as any man that ever sat thinking in the shade. That greasy beast of a skipper poked his big cropped head from under the canvas and screwed his fishy eyes up at me. Donnervader! You will die, he growled, and drew in like a turtle. I had seen him. I had heard him. He didn't interrupt me. I was thinking just then that I wouldn't. He tried to sound my thought with an attentive glance dropped on me in passing. Do you mean to say you had been deliberating with yourself whether you would die? I asked in as impenetrable a tone as I could command. He nodded without stopping. Yes, it had come to that as I sat there alone, he said. He passed on a few steps to the imaginary end of his beat, and when he flung round to come back, both his hands were thrust deep into his pockets. He stopped short in front of my chair and looked down. Don't you believe it? He inquired with tense curiosity. I was moved to make a solemn declaration of my readiness to believe implicitly anything he thought fit to tell me.
Joining us now to talk about this section of the text and provide an article recommendation is Lauren Gargani, Library Director at Nutting Memorial Library. Hi, Lauren. Welcome back. Hi, Anne. How are you today? Doing great. So I hear you have a pretty fun article for us today. Pretty fun might be an overstatement, but I enjoyed it. Well, that's good. Tell us about it. Great. So this is an article called Conrad's Source for Lord Jim. And it's an older article. Um, we're going all the way back to 1964 today. And this is from Modern Language Review. And the author is Norman Sherry. And when I read the title of the article, I didn't know what we meant about source. I thought we might be talking about, you know, the incident. And Sherry does start off talking about how he, he says it's long been accepted that Conrad based the desertion of the Patna and Lord Jim upon an actual case, the desertion of the pilgrim ship Jetta by her European captain and officers. And I thought we were going to be primarily talking about the ship and those parallels. And there is some discussion of that. But a lot of this article is about the actual character of Lord Jim, and I think it's kind of fascinating. Wow. So where did this character come from? So there was um, a man called Augustine Podmore Williams, and he was the first mate of the Jetta at the time of desertion. Okay. So, and we think that he's that inspiration for Jim here? Yeah, and Sherry gives us a lot of evidence going into, you know, discussions with William's family and looking at photographic evidence and draws all of these parallels between um, the description of Lord Jim that we're given um, and, you know, Jim's character in the novel and really, you know, goes to great lengths to show all of these parallels between this actual man um, it's it's interesting. Uh, some of the description, it seems like Conrad, you know, really did base specific elements of Jim on this person who was, you know, an actual real living person who went through that incident. Um, and, and he did go on to live a less dramatically interesting life, um, maybe less novel worthy. Um, but he talks about his life and, you know, where Williams ended up um, and, and just gives a lot of interesting details. That's very interesting. And so I assume that we're still looking at this book as fiction. He that Conrad made this story up in all of its details, but kind of what movies would look at as based on a true story. I think that's fair. Um, and, you know, again, this is, you know, I, I'm sure there's been a lot written since this article came out in the 1960s uh, to further provide some context. And I don't know what the scholarly opinion is, you know, since then on how how accurate Sherry's examples are. There are biographical details in here, I think, that we can very clearly see informing what Conrad's writing about, even if the character of Jim is, you know, going through a very different experience. Um, Williams did have to participate in an inquiry related to the abandonment of the Jetta by the officers. So that's, you know, th there is there is a direct parallel. I'm convinced. Well, and I would think that, um, you know, since Conrad was a mariner and he did have to think about these ethical issues and had a lot of experience being on board ship and in these parts of the world, um, that, you know, it might have been based on this actual historical character. 
Um, but potentially any mariner going through um, an inquiry like this or imagining an inquiry like this, um, there were probably a lot of commonalities and common experiences. So some of it based on the actual events, some of it based on Conrad's imaginings of what that must have been like for that mariner, and then a little more fictionalization for our particular character of Jim. Would you say that's kind of accurate? I think so. I think so. Um, one of the really interesting things, uh, according to this article, though, is that Conrad apparently actually met Williams oh. in Singapore. And there's a discussion here of Williams having um, not returned to his home, partly because he might have been, you know, unable to face his father in light of what he had done. And he wanted to establish himself and sort of redeem himself elsewhere in the world. And he does go on to marry someone he meets there and live out his life. And, you know, there's a description of the end of his life, which is much less uh, dramatic than some of the events of the novel, but it's, uh, yeah, just some really interesting context and parallels. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I especially like what you mentioned that when we're looking at an older article like this, we aren't necessarily looking at the most current interpretation um, and that this kind of scholarship involves a lot of conversation between scholars and over the course of years or decades. So in the 50 years or so since this was published, it would be really interesting to see what that conversation has been um, in the literature. So I bet that if people are interested to see how that conversation developed um, and also where the thinking is by this point on those parallels, then they could look up um, all of those other articles, see how it progressed over time. Um, and that can be done through checking the citations of maybe looking for who cited this work more recently, um, which is a really cool tool that's available in scholarly literature. Right, that's a great suggestion. Um, this article also was published in um, a book uh, by the same author called Conrad's Eastern World. So it did become a chapter of that book. And there are several chapters in there about Lord Jim. So, um, you know, if, if you're looking for an expanded version of that conversation and for some additional context, um, that's a book that we don't actually have in our library's collection, but we're going to be acquiring because uh, it's available in a reprint. And I think that it would be helpful to anybody who's who's trying to study this. That would be a good addition. I know we have some of the more recent texts about Conrad and Lord Jim, um, like the more recent Dawn Watch, uh, which is a biography of Conrad. Um, that's also really interesting and touches on Lord Jim specifically. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, and again, we'll be linking and citing this article in our show notes, both for listeners who are part of the MMA community, as well as people a little farther afield. Um, and we look forward to having you back next week. I look forward to it as well. Thank you, Anne. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. And now we return to this installment of Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 11 He heard me out with his head on one side, and I had another glimpse through a rent in the mist in which he moved and had his being. The dim candle spluttered within the ball of glass, and that was all I had to see him by. At his back was the dark night with the clear stars, 
whose distant glitter disposed in retreating planes lured the eye into the depths of greater darkness. And yet a mysterious light seemed to show me his boyish head, as if in that moment the youth within him had, for a moment, glowed and expired. You are an awful good sort to listen like this, he said. It does me good. You don't know what it is to me. You don't... Words seemed to fail him. It was a distinct glimpse. He was a youngster of the sort you'd like to see about you, of the sort you like to imagine yourself to have been, of the sort whose appearance claims the fellowship of these illusions you had thought gone out, extinct, cold, and which, as if rekindled at the approach of another flame, give a deep flutter, deep down somewhere, give a flutter of light, of heat. Yes, I had a glimpse of him then, and it was not the last of that kind. You don't know what it is for a fellow in my position to be believed. Make a clean breast of it to an elder man. It is so difficult, so awfully unfair, so hard to understand. The mists were closing again. I don't know how old I appeared to him, and how much wise. Not half as old as I felt just then. Not half as uselessly wise as I knew myself to be. Surely in no other craft as in that of the sea do the hearts of those already launched to sink or swim go out so much to the youth on the brink, looking with shining eyes upon that glitter of the vast surface which is only a reflection of his own glances full of fire. There is such magnificent vagueness in the expectations that had driven each of us to the sea, such a glorious indefiniteness, such a beautiful greed of adventures that are their own and only reward. What we get, well, we won't talk of that, but can one of us restrain a smile? In no other kind of life is the illusion more wide of reality. In no other is the beginning all illusion, the disenchantment more swift, the subjugation more complete. Hadn't we all commenced with the same desire, ended with the same knowledge, carried the memory of the same cherished glamour through the sordid days of imprecation? What wonder, then, when some heavy prod gets home the bond is found to be close, that besides the fellowship of the craft there is felt the strength of a wider feeling, the feeling that binds a man to a child. He was there before me, believing that age and wisdom can find a remedy against the pain of truth, giving me a glimpse of himself as a young fellow in a scrape that is the very devil of a scrape, the sort of scrape greybeards wag at solemnly while they hide a smile. And he had been deliberating upon death. Confound him! He had found that to meditate about because he thought he had saved his life while all its glamour had gone with the ship in the night. What more natural? It was tragic enough and funny enough in all conscience to call aloud for compassion, and in what was I better than the rest of us to refuse him my pity? And even as I looked at him, the mists rolled into the rent, and his voice spoke. I was so lost, you know. It was the sort of thing one does not expect to happen to one. It was not like a fight, for instance. It was not, I admitted. He appeared changed, as if he had suddenly matured. One couldn't be sure, he muttered. Ah, you are not sure, I said, and was placated by the sound of a faint sigh that passed between us like the flight of a bird in the night. Well, I wasn't, he said courageously. It was something like that wretched story they made up. It was not a lie, but it wasn't the truth all the same. It was something, one knows a downright lie. There was not the thickness of a sheet of paper between the right and the wrong of this affair. How much more did you want? I asked, but I think I spoke so low that he did not catch what I said. 
He had advanced his argument as though life had been a network of paths separated by chasms. His voice sounded reasonable. Suppose I had not. I mean to say, suppose I had stuck to the ship. Well, how much longer? Say, a minute, half a minute. Come, in thirty seconds, as it seemed certain then, I would have been overboard. And do you think I would not have laid hold of the first thing that came in my way? Or, lifeboy, grating, anything? Wouldn't you? And be saved, I interjected. I would have meant to be, he retorted. And that's more than I meant when I... He shivered as if about to swallow some nauseous drug. Jumped. He pronounced with a convulsive effort, whose stress, as if propagated by the waves of the air, made my body stir a little in the chair. He fixed me with lowering eyes. Don't you believe me? He cried. I swear. Confound it. You got me here to talk, and you must. You said you would believe. Of course I do, I protested, in a matter-of-fact tone which produced a calming effect. Forgive me, he said. Of course I wouldn't have talked to you about all this if you had not been a gentleman. I ought to have known. I am, I am a gentleman too. Yes, yes, I said hastily. He was looking me squarely in the face and withdrew his gaze slowly. Now you understand why I didn't after all, didn't go out in that way. I wasn't going to be frightened at what I had done. And anyhow, if I had stuck to the ship, I would have done my best to be saved. Men have been known to float for hours in the open sea and be picked up not much the worse for it. I might have lasted it out better than many others. There's nothing the matter with my heart. He withdrew his right fist from his pocket, and the blow he struck on his chest resounded like a muffled detonation in the night. No, I said. He meditated, with his legs slightly apart and his chin sunk. A hair's breadth, he muttered. Not the breadth of a hair between this and that. And at the time... It is difficult to see a hair at midnight, I put in, a little viciously, I fear. Don't you see what I mean by the solidarity of the craft? I was aggrieved against him as though he had cheated me, me, of a splendid opportunity to keep up the illusion of my beginnings, as though he had robbed our common life of the last spark of its glamour. And so you cleared out at once. Jumped, he corrected me incisively. Jumped, mind, he repeated, and I wondered at the evident but obscure intention. Well, yes, perhaps I could not see then, but I had plenty of time and amount of light in the boat, and I could think, too. Nobody would know, of course, but this did not make it any easier for me. You've got to believe that, too. I did not want all this talk. No, yes, I won't lie. I wanted it. It was the very thing I wanted. There. Do you think you or anybody could have made me if I... I am... I am not afraid to tell. And I wasn't afraid to think, either. I looked it in the face. I wasn't going to run away. At first, at night, if it hadn't been for those fellows, I might have... No, by heavens, I was not going to give them that satisfaction. They had done enough. They made up a story and believed it for all I know. But I knew the truth, and I would live it down, alone, with myself. I wasn't going to give in to such a beastly, unfair thing. What did it prove, after all? I was confoundedly cut up, sick of life, to tell you the truth. But what would have been the good to shirk it, in in that way. That was not the way. I believe, I believe it would have, it would have ended nothing. He had been walking up and down, but with the last word he turned short at me. What do you believe? He asked with violence. 
A pause ensued, and suddenly I felt myself overcome by a profound and hopeless fatigue, as though his voice had startled me out of a dream of wandering through empty spaces whose immensity had harassed my soul and exhausted my body. Would have ended nothing, he muttered over me obstinately after a little while. No, the proper thing was to face it out, alone for myself, wait for another chance, find out. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Lord Jim. As a reminder, please check our show notes for the link to the text as well as information on related reading. This episode was read and produced by me, Anne Dyer. Article recommendations and graphics by Lauren Gargani. Special thanks to Emily Baer. Music by Chad Crouch.